Facebook, Twitter, 24-7 News, talk radio, citizen journalism, fake news, real news. The audience is drowning in an overwhelming overload of information. Clearly a guidepost is needed to identify what is trustworthy and a reliable source of both news and information. The Delaware Humanities Podcast, A Matter of Facts, will delve into this topic. I'm Nancy Karabjanian. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Now we join our A Matter of Facts podcast host, Nancy Karabjanian. Thanks for joining us again on the A Matter of Facts podcast. I'm Tom Burns, sitting in for Nancy Karabjanian. The flood of information we process these days is hardly limited to news. In almost all parts of our lives, there is more information available than ever before. But that doesn't necessarily translate into better understanding or better outcomes. That's especially true when it comes to medicine and specifically our own health. Where should we look for the best information on our health and our health care? And perhaps more importantly, how can we better communicate with our own doctor? We're joined on this episode by an expert on this topic, Dr. Danielle Ofri. She's a physician at New York's Bellevue Hospital, the oldest public hospital in the country, and a faculty member at the NYU School of Medicine. She's also co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Bellevue Literary Review, the first literary journal developed in a medical setting. She's written extensively about medicine and the doctor-patient relationship. And her latest book, What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear, focuses on communication between doctors and their patients. Dr. Ofri, thank you so much for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. So let me start here. With all the advances in medicine, in treatment, technology, is it more difficult now for people and their doctors to communicate with each other? I think it is, and I would say it's mainly because of the electronic medical record. You know, if you go to your doctor these days, it's like you're, um, you know, just sitting in the secretarial pool with your doctor's typing into the computer and hardly looking at you. And that's really, I think, fundamentally changed um, or limited the ability of doctors to talk directly with their patients. And you argue that in the midst of all this information and this technology, that really that conversation is still the most important diagnostic tool in medicine. Tell us a little bit more about that. Why is it so important to have conversation rather than, as you said, this kind of like input-output type of relationship? Well, if you think about the data, what data do doctors need to make a diagnosis? And the truth is the patient's story, what the patient reports to you, is the most powerful data. Other things like lab tests, MRIs, x-rays, that's all, you know, confirmatory. But really the basis of making diagnosis is what the patient says and of course, the physical exam. So if you think about the discussions in doctor and patient, not so much as bedside manner or, you know, some nice questions, it's actually the hard clinical data upon which we make our diagnoses. You can see why it's the most important thing. And if we're also thinking about minimizing medical error, which is the topic I'm working on now, we can see that medical error can begin right in the doctor-patient conversation. If doctors aren't hearing what patients say or aren't able to communicate back to the patient, what the patient needs to do. 
It, it needs to be an ongoing conversation, right? I mean, it needs to be not just a, an initial conversation. It needs to be that, that ability to go back and forth between a patient and a doctor, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, sometimes your encounter with a doctor may just be one visit, an emergency room or a specialist. But if you're lucky to have a good primary care doctor, yes, it will be an ongoing conversation. And for that, I, I certainly put even more stock in that because the more you develop those communication skills, the more you understand each other. And so for patients I've known for many years, I know right away when something is wrong because we've had so, so much practice in talking that I can tell from their tone of voice what they say, how they look, when something's out of the ordinary. I found it interesting in, in what patients say, what doctors hear, the book, uh, and in your lectures, you rely largely on stories to convey your message. How important do you feel that approach is in getting people to connect with the information that you want them to hear and perhaps see themselves in these stories and be able to understand exactly how this dynamic should work? Human beings are innately wired to find stories, the, the easiest thing to remember. So sometimes, you know, if I ask if I'm with a medical audience, you know, you know, I ask them some factual question about a test or a diagnosis, and most people don't remember. They have to look it up, which is fine. But if I ask, tell me, you know, um, the patient, the first patient ever died with you, everyone remembers that. And the same thing for non-medical people. We remember stories much more than facts and figures. So I think it's intrinsic to the, the human race that stories are a way of structuring information and remembering them and making sense of them. You know, if the, the patient could hand you a checklist of their symptoms, that's not to say if they explain what happened, how it happened, how it affected their life, that makes much more sense. And do you hope in some ways that when people hear these stories or read these stories in your book that it encourages them to tell their own stories when they're with their doctors and, and communicate with their doctors in that way and perhaps foster these better conversations? Well, I hope so. Um, and I think it's, you know, an interesting way um, because of communicating information because the doctor, in listening to the story, in some ways becomes a character in that story. They're part of the story. And so because the patient's issues affect them. And so the more invested we are in the patient's story, I think the more valuable the information is and the more, you know, we can make sense of it and help, you know, uncover the problem and also help explain how to solve the problem. So what can patients do better in, in this dynamic? What, what should they be doing when they see their doctor to try and build this, this conversational dynamic? Well, there are a couple of things. So one is to recognize that the doctor-patient conversation is the most important tool, and so to expect that. And if your doctor is just sitting in front of the computer and you know, checking the boxes, you're not getting a good medical visit. No matter how well-qualified or highly rated your doctor is, that's not a good visit. So you want to either say something which you can or get a different doctor. The second is to prepare yourself for the visit. I know we all here to make a list of questions, but to think carefully, if you have a list of 50 questions, your story will be very long, and it'll guarantee that things will be superficial, right? You can't do 50 issues in a 10-minute visit. So to prioritize and think about the top two or three most important things, and you can even say at the outset, hey, doc, here are the three things I really want to make sure we get to. Okay, and the doctor may also have a priority as well. And so if you haven't gotten to it, you can go back and say, you know, we, we didn't get to this one that's very important. So to come prepared but to prioritize and also to make sure you find a doctor who is really valuing the conversation and not viewing it as sort of an affable bonus on the side. Do you get a sense that a lot of times if you do prioritize those questions, get those top two or three in, that eventually hitting those well will eventually lead to maybe the other 
8, 9, 10, 11, 12 things that, that are on your list? Oh, oh yes, because often the things are related. And, and so prioritizing helps also for, for the patient to focus on what's the most important. And, yes, as you said, many things will come up. Or we say, listen, there are five things we didn't get to. You know, let's do my next visit. Let's schedule a phone call. Um, but we've gotten the most important things down. On the other side of this equation, what do doctors need to do better? Or maybe what I should say is, you know, what should people expect from their doctors in this conversation? Well, doctors should also view the doctor-patient conversation as the most important thing they're um, striving for in their interaction with the patient. So although we you know, are forced to fill in many, many boxes in the computer, remember that's ancillary and that getting a good history. So I recommend to, you know, I talk to my students and, and interns about being efficient because it's or very busy, is that to take one minute and focus on the patient and listen without saying a word. One minute of what we have to call full frontal listening is actually quite a bit, and most patients will get out their story in, in a minute. And, and then they listen, you know, I don't want to miss what you're saying. Um, I need to take notes while you speak, and you kind of incorporate the, the computer. But that you spend one minute of solid listening, and that will pay back many dividends. One is you'll get all the information and make fewer errors. But second, you'll invest in a trust with the patient so that when something important comes up, the patient is much more likely to let you know. I do want to talk about a couple of the situations you bring up in uh, what patients say, what doctors hear. Uh, At one point, you tell the story of a patient who receives two different assessments from two different doctors. What should patients do when that type of situation comes up? Well, one is to try and, and look carefully at those two assessments and see if there's any overlap. And in this situation, I had completely different uh, assessments. But then go back to the doctors and say, you know, I spoke to Dr. X, and she had this view, and vice versa, the other, and get their sense of that. Sometimes, as in this case, those two opposite things actually make sense if you look at the perspective of the doctor. In this case, it was a surgeon versus, an, you know, a uh, primary care doctor who just were looking at different aspects uh, of the patient's condition. So it's fine to go back and, you know, readdress it and also find to get a third opinion. In some ways, it's, it's not altogether different than what journalists do. You talk to one source, then you go to another source, then you kind of go back to another source to say, here's what this source said, what, how do you react to it, what do you think of that? There is that, that, that same type of dynamic there, right? Absolutely. And I think also because the human body is not, you know, just a laundry list, and there's many aspects, and, and you know, sometimes, you know, you might want to give, for example, chemotherapy to... To, you know, treat a cancer, and maybe the disease will get better, but the patient may actually feel worse because of the side effects. So depending on which aspect of the illness you're focusing on, you could have a very different condition. In your book, you also delve into various studies involving doctor-patient communication. Uh, the one on electrical stimulation done on back pain yielded some, some really interesting results. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what, what we should take away from that type of, of uh, information? Sure, this is one of my favorite studies, mainly because back pain is, you know, every single day. I just came from my clinic, and I had several patients with back pain. And most patients, you know, go to physical therapy. And I usually think of physical therapy in terms of exercises and massage, maybe the electrical nerve stimulation machine. But I also think of it in terms of how therapists communicate with the patients. And in this study, the patients were going to physical therapy to get that electrical nerve stimulation. So half the patients had the machine Half the patients had sham, machine stuff not turned on. And those patients had a 25% reduction in pain, right? Nothing at all, the placebo effect, it's great. But turn the machine on, you get a 45% reduction in pain. So the machine works. But then, here's the really interesting thing. They, they subdivided the physical therapist. Half were told to be absolutely quiet, 
and half are told to be engaging. Um, ask the patient about their pain, how it affects their life, be optimistic it'll get better. So a quarter of the patients got the fake machine but the engaged physical therapist, and they had a 55% reduction in pain. So the physical therapist, just in talking, communicating, was more effective than the machine itself. And the machine probably cost more than the physical therapist's salary. But the core of the patients that got the machine and the engaged physical therapist had even better, 75% reduction in pain. So it shows that the communication alone can have really hard clinical outcomes, relief of pain, irrespective of having a fancy machine going on. Do you feel that this study also may have some implications for use of pain medication and its connection to the opioid crisis? Absolutely. You know, I um, before I was a physician, I had a PhD in biochemistry, and I and I did my work on opiate receptors. Um, and so the whole aspect of that fascinates me. And I think exploring ways that we can help with pain relief outside of opiate medications is critical. And, and certainly, many of our patients have pain, of, you know, of all kinds. And it can be leaner on prescriptions because they're easy, they're covered by insurance, but insurance may not cover talk therapy, physical therapy, acupuncture, all the other modalities that can help with pain. And I think if we as physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners recognize that the way we communicate can help relieve pain, well, let's maximize that. And, and I think for patients, I had a patient said to me, I don't care if it's a dill pickle, you know, if it gets my pain better, um, then let's, let's do it. So let's, you know, take advantage of, of the pain-relieving effects that good communication can have um, as much as we can. I'm curious, what do you think about the WebMD, the symptom checker websites? Uh, are they useful or can they wind up doing more harm than good? Well, I think they can be useful in a general sense to, to point you in the direction, but certainly they, you know, if you're up at 2 o'clock in the morning and you're doing a symptom checker and it lists, you know, 20 rare fatal illnesses, you know, you probably would be better off to close the computer and just get a good night of sleep. So I think it can be a little bit helpful. I certainly want people to only use sites that are vetted, you know, by reputable medical sources. I mean, there's all kinds of snake oil out there. So be careful to use places that, that are real medical places that cite references for what they do and actual people with um, accreditations that, that are not just when you're printed off the Internet. But you really do need to see your doctor and talk to them because those symptom checkers are doing things on average, right? And you're not an average as a person. You're a unique individual. And so you may associate with whatever rash, but your rash may not be what everyone else's rash is. So you do want to see your doctor and your nurse about your symptoms. So beyond information about one's own health and, and communicating with your doctor, there's also a lot to digest these days when it comes to health care coverage and insurance, especially when it comes to issues like the Affordable Care Act. What advice do you have for people who are trying to navigate that information when it, uh, in regards to their, their health and, and health conversations? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very complicated, and it's really a shame that it is. I mean, being sick, that's hard enough. <laughs> so having a fever, being nauseous, being frightened, to have to worry about, you know, navigating insurance just is really a cruel thing that, that our society does, does to, to Americans and something that most Europeans don't ever have to think about. Um, you know, I, and lots of patients will naturally ask their doctors about that, but I have to confess that we doctors are equally confused. So we're not the best source for that. But sometimes um, you may want to hunt for either social workers in your medical practice or institution, and sometimes there are state you know, health societies that can help you navigate that. 
but it's not it's not easy. That that is for sure. Um, and if you are feeling sick, you have to have someone else be doing that for you, whether it's a spouse or a parent or an adult child, to take care of the paperwork where you can just focus on being ill and trying to get better. You will be in Dover later this month, April 28th, speaking at, say, Delaware Humanities uh, event honoring Bay Health. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you'll be covering in, in that appearance, what people can expect to hear from you that night? Yeah, I will be talking uh, on the topic of what patients say, what doctors hear. Because I know that there's an enormous gap between how patients present their symptoms or what they want their doctors to hear and what the doctors actually hear. And I'm intrigued from both perspectives, how patients can make the communication work better and more effectively for them, and also how doctors can be better listeners and help understand what the patients are trying to bring to them. And is this a, a talk that you've kind of you've done before? And, and, and if so, what kind of, I guess, reaction and feedback have you gotten from it? I've given the talk in, in different settings, sometimes with predominantly patients, sometimes with predominantly uh, medical professionals, and sometimes a mix. And I would say that for most people, no matter where you are on the spectrum, it certainly resonates as a topic of concern. Almost everyone, doctor, patient, nurse, feels that the communication that we have is not as good as it should be. And sometimes it's related to not having enough time or too much computers in the room or too much to cover. But I think we all recognize that it's not as good as it should be and that it needs to be better because it's a crucial part of medical care. And I do want to remind our listeners that tickets for that April 28th event are available at the Delaware Humanities website, dehumanities.org. Dr. Ofri, we like to end this podcast by asking all of our guests uh, the same question, and that is, where do you get your news? What are your favorite news sources? Well, I have four news sources that I use a lot. Um, I'm a daily reader of the New York Times. Um, I read the New Yorker every week. I listen to NPR during the day, and my the latest edition, I listen to BBC at night. Um, I often have insomnia, and so BBC uh, runs their radio, you know, 24 hours a day, but our nighttime is their day. So I've been enjoying the kind of international perspective that the BBC gives. I'm up on my cricket teams in Bangladesh and, and, and other things happening that we often don't hear about in America. Well, Dr. Danielle Ofri, we appreciate you taking your time and joining us here on the A Matter of Facts podcast. We really appreciated hearing from you. Thank you so much. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.